You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Welcome everyone to episode six of season one. Our guest today is Dr. Glenn Packiam. Glenn has served for years at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, and he first came to be known for his work with the Desperation Band and the School of Worship that New Life launched. But more recently, Glenn turned his attention to the ancient faith, and he went back to school to work on his PhD in New Testament. You can actually find Glenn teaching on N.T. Wright's website, and Glenn came out of his studies as an Anglican priest, yet he still serves at New Life, so he's an Anglican charismatic pastor. Now, in episode three of season one, we featured Kay Warren, who talked about acute anxiety, and in that episode, we noted the difference between acute and chronic anxiety. They're both very real, but they show up differently, and Glenn also has experience with both, and he'll speak to both in this interview. Glenn also talks a bit about a genogram, and I found genograms to be so helpful that I've actually dedicated an entire chapter of my book to them. So he and I will discuss genograms, and we'll be discussing them again on this podcast throughout the season. But I was grateful to Glenn for introducing them to us in this interview. But before we jumped into the deep end, I began by asking Glenn to share an early leadership encounter where he felt out of his depth. An early one would have been when we were starting the School of Worship here in 2002. And I was, I was 24, I think, and they said, why don't you lead this? And, you know, there's a little bit of that overconfidence of being an early 20, you know, 20, young 20-something, and thinking, okay, well, I can draw up a curriculum, and I can design this. But then you kind of think, wait a minute, people are sending their 18-year-old, 19-year-old, young adult, you know, not kids, but to a parent. They're, they're sending you their kid for a year. Um, what are you doing with this year? And, and, and then as the school sort of grew, I remember thinking, okay, these people, some people are changing careers, hoping for a church uh, ministry sort of job to uh, be the result of this and can we guarantee it? So there are several pieces of it. There's a financial component of it. There's a content component of it. There's a career component of this. Um, and so I remember thinking, I don't, I don't know if I know what I'm doing here, you know. And then, of course, you know, Steve, uh, th- there are so many moments each day. I-, I just came from a meeting this morning about a possible building stuff for our new life downtown and thinking, boy, we are so over our heads in this. Like, I, I know a bit about these conversations and, you know, but there's so much that we don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's a pretty typical experience for yeah. a leader. You have yeah. to lead something without having all the information or experience. Right. What's it like for you uh, internally when there's a big gap between what the job requires and what you feel like you're able to do? Well, it's interesting because I, I think... Uh, I almost feel like there are two versions of myself that that are at war in those moments where one wants to sort of take the vulnerable like hey I I don't really know what I'm doing here so you 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 know can you help me with this or the other wants to sort of go the opposite direction and to say and to throw out a few key words or little jargony things to sort of appear that I might know a little bit more you know and uh <laughs> And to say, and I, you know what's interesting is I think as a pastor, you are expected to have competencies in some very different areas, right? Yes. So you're sort of expected to be theologically competent. Uh, you're expected to be like this very in-tune counselor that knows all the right terminology about grief and loss. 
then there are other moments where you're sort of expected to be this business savvy and yes. ROIs and return, you know, all of these different things and uh, minimum viable product and blah, blah, blah. And, and so I, I find myself sometimes in those settings with business people from our c- congregation. And if we're talking about partnership things or whatever, I find myself wanting to oversell uh-huh. or almost inflate a competency uh-huh. that isn't really there. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Like you manage the gap by trying to increase the perceived competence of yourself. Yeah, yeah. Nice. yeah. And it's almost like you feel like they expect that of you. Oh, interesting. And so, you know, it's funny. I, I, I was talking to actually my spiritual director uh, earlier this week about the illusions that I have of myself as a leader that I would like to prop up. And that, that actually, it's not that I'm as concerned about people becoming disillusioned with me and realizing, uh-huh. oh, he's not actually da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. But it's more that I don't want to be disillusioned by myself. Okay. You know, like, I want to think that, no, 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 I can do that, and I can be that. Interesting. Yeah. One of the reasons It just I... got real, Steve. <laughs> no, I think, I think that's... Um... I think that's the experience of most leaders. And one of the reasons I do this show, particularly for younger leaders, Mm. is to, I don't know, reassure them that, like, so I've been leading now 23 years. Mm. I still feel out of my depth most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, so, no, it's real helpful. (laughs) But yeah, that kind of triggers an Enneagram question. Have you Mm. done Enneagram work? I have a little. Uh, I think I'm a three. Yeah, you're sounding. I mean, like don't a three. don't I sound like that? Yeah. yeah, I'm very aware of how I'm being perceived it, and what the room requires. That's it. Yeah. That's it. So, learning the healthy part of that and learning the traps of that and the unhealthy part of that and yeah, yeah, yeah that's good. So one of the reasons I wanted to uh, have you on the show is I know you have experience with genograms. Mm-hmm. And uh, in managing leadership anxiety, a mm. genogram is one of the deeper tools we use mm. to help people figure out what cards they've been dealt mm. and how they play them. Mm. So could you just tell us, for people who have no idea what a genogram is, yeah. tell us what it is. Well, I think at its simple form, you're, you're kind of making, a, you start by sort of mapping a family tree, but then you start to, you know, once you see where the relationships are, then you start to note earthquake events, you know, say disruptive events like a divorce or a death. And, and, and it's not just with parents and siblings and your own spouse and kids, but it can also be with uncles or aunties. Um, those things that would have been disruptive even in your growing up years to, to know about uncle so-and-so who had this, you know, problem or whatever. Um, and, and then there are places where you map kind of strained relationships. And you say, okay, right. this one uh, with this sibling or this, you, you know, a relative, um, th- that relationship was strained. Or maybe even there was a relationship that was cut off, you know. I think about on my father's side, you know, a lot of his siblings are Hindus. In fact, my father was raised as a Hindu. And so when he became a Christian, those relationships really got severed. So as a child, I didn't really know the, that side of the family very yeah. well, you know. So, so that's something to map out on my mom's side. Her parents got divorced, at, at, you know, at a young age for her, and so just thinking about that and those relationships interacting with one grandparent at a time, or even how that might have impacted her, and and then maybe how that um, 
what that resulted in as far as our family uh, putting a strong emphasis on togetherness and solidarity oh, yeah. and we're gonna you know so so you're not necessarily looking for unhealth you're just trying to name all the dynamics of this and then identify uh, the ways that that has impacted or is impacting you so you know kind of another layer to the the, the genogram is to to even identify some of the scripts that come along with it um, what we would call the family propaganda okay yeah like yeah. this is this is what our family says is true yeah even if it may it may be true but it may not be the whole truth stuff like that right okay. yeah family propaganda is great uh, and, and, and maybe even some internal ones, you know, oh, like good. some internal scripts like, well, I got to be the one to mediate whenever my dad and my sister, and this is a hypothetical here, whenever they have, <laughs> uh, you know, I've got to be the one to, to mediate or whenever there's tension here, I, I'm the, pe you know. And so sometimes you might learn to overfunction in order to hold the family together. Okay. And not realizing that you learn that skill early on, which can be good, but then you, you get in a workplace environment or a ministry environment and it's the family of God. Now all of a sudden you think, why do I always feel like every conflict, it's, it's up to me to manage and peacemake and mediate. And all of this stress and anxiety starts boiling up within you or within me because I'm over-functioning mm -hmm. to keep the peace in, in, in the fam. So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying... By doing a genogram, it helps you figure out the way you manage your leadership. I, I think so, at the very least. I mean, I, I think it it it, um, it obviously helps you in your current family or the household you're with. Yeah. But certainly within the organization that you're leading as well, to realize, okay, these are not just personality things or or, or, or strengths and weaknesses. These are also there's it's almost like muscle memory of the soul. Oh, you know, yeah. where you say, well, I'm used to functioning this way and. Uh, if you're the little brother or a little sister in the family, you might bring that into the, the workplace where you always feel like everybody's always picking on you, yeah. you know, you got to prove yourself or be scrappy. So even just naming the roles that you grew up playing and the scripts that accompanied it, uh, uh, you import those into your leadership. I import those into my leadership without even realizing Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. What order, what is your birth order? <laughs> I'm the youngest of two, so it's just my older sister and me. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm the youngest yeah. and my wife's the youngest and uh, we like to play <laughs> and we thank God for bill pay because we never paid our, well, we paid our bills, but now that everything's automated, <laughs> right. it's revolutionizing right. our life. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying that as a youngest, uh, sometimes, for example, a youngest can show up in an office and not realize that they're kind of showing up like a youngest yeah. and then get frustrated. Maybe. Maybe. And, and, and. And either whether that's the, the, the failure to sort of take responsibility or whether that's the perception of not being taken seriously or why is everybody always looking at me? You know, sometimes it'll manifest in phrases like, you know, I'm a grown man or I'm, you know, yeah. and to say, well, I mean, nobody said you weren't. Why, yeah. why do you carry that? Why are yeah. you perceiving actions in a particular way? So in a way, it's a self-awareness that that is a self-awareness of our own lens mm. and the lens through which we are perceiving other people's actions and and maybe even a self-awareness of the uh, uh, of the matrix that determines how we act within a, a team mm. or a staff. Yeah. Yeah. How long ago did you do your genogram? I'm trying to think when it was. It's probably three, maybe four years ago okay. that I did uh, my first one and I've done, a, uh, done it a handful of times. 
Um, because I think it's good to revisit it. Sometimes mm. you, you see things more clearly and you're like, you know, wait a minute. Uh, here's this and here's this and so anyway. Yeah, could you talk through the process of presenting the Genie Man? Was it a group of people you presented to and how long did it take? Um, so the first time I did it was after reading uh, a book on emotionally healthy leadership. Just yeah, because I was yep. great book. And then the second time my wife and I went out there to Queens at, the, at their church and were participating in a, a seminar or conference. So we did it there. And then a third time was with a smaller group. So we, we've facilitated it, actually had someone else come in and facilitate mm-hmm. it for our, our staff. And which, by the way, I think, I think it's really healthy when a leader, if you can have a third party person come in and facilitate it, yes. it puts you on sort of level ground here with your team. Yes. Yeah, I would actually highly recommend for those who want to do a genogram with your team, mm-hmm. make sure someone else who's experienced and trained is facilitating because it is a vulnerable experience. Absolutely. Yeah, people are sharing some you know, challenging things about their family. And, and you don't want, if, I, I fear that as a leader being the one to facilitate or introduce it, you don't want to use this as a tool of manipulation, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, well, I have no issues, but let's talk about all of your family yeah. issues, you know. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so we did, we have done that at, with our ministry staff here at, at New Life. And, and it, yeah, it is tender for a lot of people because yeah. sometimes you have family members in the room and not wanting to say, well, oh, you yeah. know, I, I love my you know, family member, but boy, that part was hard. And that, you know, that kind well, of thing. and that actually brings up a great point because a, a true genogram is intentionally subjective. So mm-hmm. if you have another family member mm-hmm. in the room, they may have a very different interpretation yeah. of the event that you're talking about. But really, the power of the genogram is how you made meaning out of an event. Mm. Would you be willing to share a couple of takeaways that you personally learned? I I do think um, I do think I for me the the ability to sort of pick up on tensions within the office okay is a good thing unless I'm tempted to sort of over own it and to say well I I need to find a way to smooth this out or to make this work instead of saying uh, maybe my role as a leader is to help people develop their own tools and their own skills to become healthier in their relationships within with one another rather than me trying to broker the peace okay. with everyone. I mean, that's the temptation. That's a great example. Yeah. Could we dig on in on that a little bit? Sure. All right. So you notice potentially some tension, which means that puts you in tension, mm-hmm. if that's what I heard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like for you before you really figured this out? How were you carrying that tension and how is that affecting other things? I, I think... Um, I think I would feel it in, even in my body, in the tightness of okay. my back and neck, okay. and you know, and then just think, all right, how do I, you know, uh, what conversations do I try to have here and there, and, um, and, and actually also being aware of my own idealizations, my own way of saying, well, but it ought to be like this, and this is how we ought to, you know, and being willing to say, well. No, it doesn't have to be like that, and this is okay, and this is okay. So, mm-hmm. A, I, I would say part of it is, A, being at peace with some of the messiness of relational dynamics. Mm-hmm. And then, B, maybe, is is a patience that you develop with saying, this is going to take some time, mm-hmm. and that's okay. You don't have, I think part of the anxiety for me was, I have to solve this yeah. now. Yeah. And instead of saying, this is okay, 
we've introduced some change, this is a new team member, or they're in a new role, and this is da-da-da-da-da, and it's going to take some time, and that's okay. Um, and then thirdly, understanding where I could use my influence, again, with, with, with imparting or, or introducing us to tools, um, uh, skills, habits, practices, as opposed to putting out all the fires yourself, you know. So, I mean, it's one of the reasons why, as a staff, we've gone through some of the Scazzaro material. It's such great stuff. Right, and it's very accessible. Mm -hmm. It's it's good for, and we're continuing to go through it now as a way of saying, well, you might think this is elementary, you might think this is cheesy, you might think, you know, but I am going to bet that this will pay dividends in how we relate to one another. And it also secretly does save me of the anxiety of feeling like I need to go and sniff out every tension in the organization. Yeah, you know? that's a great example. Yeah, I think we're wired very similar that way. I have this lie that I believe mm. that if two people on my team are at odds with each other, it's my job to iron it out for them. Right. And it's crazy. Right. Yeah. So I'd like to switch gears. So, uh, you know, the scope of this podcast is primarily chronic leadership anxiety, which mm -hmm. means that we don't claim to walk into the territory of um, a true, like, disorder diagnosis. Mm -hmm. The other topic I don't feel that we're very qualified to cover, or I'm not qualified to cover, is acute mm -hmm. anxiety. Mm -hmm. But I was keen to get your take, because unfortunately, you and New Life sure. have gone through at least two mm -hmm. highly acute situations, mm -hmm. one being... Uh, a national scandal of mm -hmm. your lead pastor, yep. which was very well known, and mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure many of our listeners know. And the other was that um, violent attack, that, mm -hmm. that shooter that shooting, came in. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, they were 13 months apart, so the scandal was November of 06, and the shooting was December of 07. Yeah. And you think, I mean, you think in those moments, how much can one church yes. go through? And, and can we really hold up in the midst of that? You, yeah. you know, is the whole thing going to crack? Uh, um, so, I mean, I think those are um, in some ways overlapping and in other ways very different situations. Uh, yeah, so mm. we'll talk about the first one. When you have the failure of a leader, and it seems like whether it's big church, small church, this happens uh, more often than we'd like, yes. right? And, and so when there's a failure of a leader, you, you have a number of complex uh, emotions. One is there's a sense of deep hurt, of betrayal, of you are not who I thought you were mm -hmm. and and maybe even you lied to me or deceived mm -hmm. me. You let me think something that actually was not true. So there's a deep sense of betrayal. Of course, along with that, there's anger. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the result is, for, for a lot of us, is that you, you do start to build up walls and it becomes more difficult to trust a leader anymore and it's all leaders are corrupt or all pastors are, you know. Are you saying that from both sides of the fence? Like you're saying as a leader you feel that way. Are you also saying that you then had that attributed to you as a leader? That's a, good, that's a great question. I wasn't thinking that, but you're right. I mean, that, that was also true. There were people within the church who sort of, you know, you can kind of feel it when you're trying to say something. They're like, I don't know. Yeah. You're like are, are an Abraham. You just another, yeah. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. <laughs> In your case, 
another Someone person's scandal is credited to you as suspicion. <laughs> That's a great. Yeah, it's a, yeah. In, in our materials, we call it same species syndrome. Yeah. When somebody of a species wounds you, mm. all of that species is suspect. So if a church leader That's wounds fantastic. you, then all church leaders are suspect. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I, I felt it when, when Brady came here as the new senior pastor, I was like, you know, wait a minute, you're not okay. going to do this or that. Or oh, what are you doing yeah. here? And, yeah. And subconsciously, I was overly reactive to small changes he was m- wanting to make um, mm. because I thought, uh-uh, I'm not going to go all in with the leader again, you know. Yeah. But I was also on the receiving end of that as well, you know. So you have that, there's a, there's a betrayal and, and trust issue. Uh, um, but, but then there's, there's also um, uh, the sense of grieving and loss. Mm. I mean... There's a loss of a dream. There's a loss of what you thought the church was going to be. Um, there's a loss of that American thing we're all addicted to of bigger and better and success. Right. You know, so all of a sudden, now you're thinking, oh gosh, this whole thing is over. You know, and and so there's a very real uh, anxiety that's the result of grief of saying, I don't know where to go from here. Let me jump in on this. Yeah. This is a great point. Yeah. How do you lead people when you, who are grieving, when you yourself are grieving, mm-hmm. when do you share authentically your grief and when is that not helpful to them? That's got to be a tough balance. It, it is tough. And I, I do think I tend to err on the side of publicly offering words of comfort and hope and personally or one-on-one pastorally offering a bit more transparency. Okay. Uh, 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 and I don't know that that's the right approach. I, I, I know that we didn't have, um, you know, Sunday services that were, hey guys, let's yeah. just, you know. Um, we, our public um, exhortation was, we're all hurting. We, we acknowledged it, it wasn't yeah. denial, yeah. but it was also saying, this is the time to run to Jesus. So yeah. we had a lot of extra prayer meetings, a lot of extra worship times where, and, and you do need that. You do need public spaces that are less structured so there's mm. more freedom for the spectrum of emotion mm. while the, the flow of those services is very much still, um, you know, Christ as the head of the church, Hope. you know, and hopeful. Uh, but then individually, and people would say, you know, I'm da 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 da, and whether they were mad or whether they were hurt, I would say, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. I, I I get it. I'm me too. Yeah, you know? that's good. And and particularly for me, maybe because of the age I was at or the, the role that, that I held with working with mostly college students, I met with a lot of young people who, unfortunately, the scandal in particular triggered um, some crises of faith. People, yes, you know, yeah. and so people just said, "Glenn, I don't know if I can buy this anymore," and 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 for me to say, "I understand that," and there's a certain version of our faith that does need to deconstruct, yes. and it's okay that that part is crumbling, but can I say to you, you know, and so for me, Steve, this was the this was the season where I began to dig deep on the ancient faith kind of stuff, you know, where I was looking for roots that were deeper than New Life Church. I wanted the church, the church historic, the yeah. church universal. So yeah. finding uh, you know, beauty in the creed, uh, finding strength in coming to the Lord's table every Sunday, those were ways of pushing a person off center, That's you know, and saying, okay, this isn't about the gifted worship leader or the gifted communicator. This is about the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we consciously as a church found ways of building in practices that said, don't trust because I said so. Trust because 
for centuries this is what the church has confessed and trust because this is behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world at the lord's table here yeah so this these situations this is kind of what opened the door for you to anglicanism yeah that's fascinating because yeah. yeah churches like ours it feels like jesus died jesus rose from the dead and then 1980 came along and we all got going, <laughs> right? There's nothing. That's exactly there's right. There's no heritage, no, but no Anglicanism heritage. and Catholicism yeah. and Orthodoxy. Well, and, and you know, even for the, the majority of New Life, they, you know, obviously New Life is not an Anglican church, the services sure. are. Yeah. But to, just to be able to say we are nourishing from a root system yeah. that is 2,000 years old yeah. here. And, and has a continuity. Has a continuity. And yeah. so on our walls in this building, you'll see the Nicene Creed. It's the statement of faith for our church. We have weekly communion. And, and again, I, I can't underscore that enough to say what a big deal it is to, you know, to be able to say to our people, look, I may not get it right in the sermon today, but right as we end the service, we're going to invite you to come and behold the Lamb of God. Yeah. You know, look, look at the Son of, G of God, look at Jesus, and, and step out of the way, yeah. essentially. You yeah. know? So that, that was an important part of helping our church heal, yeah. giving them you know, a shift in our practices or yeah. uh, that, that actually helps them. That's really good. Glenn, this is gold. I, <laughs> I, uh, I, t I ask every guest the same set of questions, so if you don't mind, I'll, I'll throw some your Keep way. Going, yeah. All right. Um, one of the things we talk about is the physiology of anxiety. And mm. we say there's three types, and it may not, there may be mm. more types, but mm. it's a racing mind, mm. a spinning heart, or a tightening gut. Mm. Where would you say it starts for you? Hmm. I would say a spinning mind. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, but but I'm familiar with the other two as well. <laughs> yeah, it's often all three. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, even yeah. just like last week for me, a racing heart. Yeah. But mine primarily starts. Yeah. So, but the that's mind. the part of it. It's helpful to know where it mm. begins because then it feels like you can start to intervene mm. earlier. So, for you, mm. spinning mind. Yeah. How do you know when you're anxious? Um, when uh, when. I mean, when my mind starts to race and to think, okay, where is this going? And I try to run ahead of the conversation and to think, okay, what are the different turns this could take? How can I help steer it in a different way? How can I, you know, what do I need to do here? What do I need to say? Think, 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 Glenn, you know, like that that kind of... When you're preempting every possible scenario uh -huh. in your head. Yeah, yeah, preempting or or at least trying to, to, to think, all right, how can I reframe this now? How do I, what what is the categories to use to help us reset, okay. you know, back up a little bit? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, do you have a tool or two that you think you use, you use well to de-escalate anxiety? <laughs> I don't. I don't. Maybe I need a tool, Steve. Maybe you have a tool that Maybe I can use. Got a couple know? of tools? Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, half of, our, half of our material is internal anxiety and half is mm. relational anxiety. Mm. Uh, do you have a time that you could tell us when you've seen anxiety be contagious in a group, like so people catch anxiety the way you catch a cold? I mean, you know, I think we've alluded to this, but it definitely in, in sort of staff meetings, setting small staff meetings, you know, five or six people and the one person's taking a conversation a particular way and there's a negative tone to it and we're thinking, oh no, wait a minute, where is this going, okay. you know? Uh, we try to be fairly self-aware as a team. I mean, recently a conversation was heading in a, f you know, not, not, not bad negative, but negative as in, 
we were about to make some decisions that would result in some some big time changes and and someone paused and said you, you know what we are all tired we've mm-hmm. had a long mm-hmm. two weeks let's schedule and we don't have time to really do this let's take uh, find a date three weeks from now let's block out the whole day let's let's take some time pray think and let's come back to that meeting three weeks from now ready to really give our thoughts on this and that was some real yeah, wisdom there. That is wisdom. Real wisdom to say you don't have to rush this decision. You don't have to. And, and and I think that was this person who was leading the meeting. It was it was their intuition that okay, this is even though they had initially started us down the, this yep. track, but then realizing okay, okay, this is farther than maybe we need. We should go today. Oh, that's good. That's mm-hmm. a great example where they weren't focused mm-hmm. on the agenda. They were mm-hmm. focused on the process. Basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is probably the most personal question I ask. When do you most feel loved in your life? <laughs> Man, I mean, at, uh, at home, mm-hmm. uh, with my wife, I mean, the kids. Um, sometimes that's evenings, although evenings can be stressful with, with younger kids. Uh-huh. But How old are your kids? Uh, 13, 11, 8, and 6. Okay, yeah, you've got your hands full. <laughs> um but often on the uh, on those um, you know maybe that one morning a week where we're all sort of home over breakfast and you know or the night before at the end of the week which for us is Thursday nights you know tonight where we're able to sort of exhale around the dinner table look around talking to each other and we do sort of highs and lows of the day yeah. or the week and we're trying to help you know so. Yeah. I think those are beautiful moments. Um, we also get together pretty regularly with my parents who live in town now, and so when they're there, I mean, there's a deep sense of, of their love and their, um, it, that is incredibly grounding mm. for me. Uh, my dad gives the greatest hugs, you know, mm. so those are moments of, of deep belovedness, you know. That's a yeah. great answer. Yeah. I like that. Okay. What activities or places, so not people so much, mm-hmm. unless it's with people, mm-hmm. what activities or places make you feel most human and alive? Uh, cheering for a sports, uh, a t- you know, one of my teams, you know, a Bronco game, which I don't get to go to very often, uh, or even just in front of the TV with my son or with some buddies, you know, like watching a ball game. That just feels like this is, uh, this is, we're just humans. We're just enjoying this, you know. That's good. Um, out, out for a walk. Um, neighborhood, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, good. All mm-hmm. right. Final question: How do you know when you are stuck as a leader? How do you mm-hmm. know when? Uh, what signs do you have when you're trying to do the same thing and you keep getting the same result? Mm. Well, I mean, I think that's when you know you're stuck. Okay. When, when, when I realize this isn't quite working, and I can't. Maybe I'm I'm trying to coach someone, and realizing they're they're not turning the corner, or mm-hmm. I'm trying to uh, say this and it isn't working. And so, there are times in those moments where you think, well, maybe I've got people in the wrong spots. Maybe there's some role shifts that need to happen. Maybe even transitions. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also in the midst of right now kind of realigning some of our structure and systems 
to match uh, a strategy that we're going forward with as a church that we, we've sort of been beta testing the strategy for five years or so and now oh, wow. we know this is the strategy so now we're trying to catch up some of our structures with it and but that's a that's a place of saying yeah this this meeting isn't serving its purpose or this the way we've organized it it's not we need to think about a different way of organizing it um, for me personally when I feel stuck is is when I feel stale like mm. if I'm not if something's not firing and maybe this is the whole you know mind goes racing maybe the the flip side of that is if something's not sparking my mind if I'm not intrigued by something and thinking oh that's a fresh paradigm I mean this conversation Steve you're making me think of wow there's some new categories and lenses to kind of look at team dynamics or whatever through that feels like growing to me, you know. So your soul health is connected for you to curiosity by the sound of it. Yeah, yes. That's yes, a, a, a learning, uh, and not learning as in just accumulating sort of data, but, sure. but almost like, whoa, 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 that's a different paradigm, or that's yeah. a different lens, like I, I want to hear more about that. Oh, that's you know? good. You, re- yeah. you feel refreshed by chasing. I, I love that. Oh, that's good. I love that, yeah. Huh. yeah. Glenn, this has been a great time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks for your time. Steve. Thank you. If you found the podcast beneficial, you can help us out by subscribing to make sure every episode is delivered straight to you. You can also take 30 seconds and leave us an honest review on iTunes. For more resources, you can visit managingleadershipanxiety.com and download a free chapter of my upcoming book. This episode is a production of Steve Cuss and Brendan Reed.